0: So, okay, back to these two stats. The two stats I find really interesting is uh, the first one being Mother's Day is traditionally the second most populated Sunday, church church day, uh, of the year. Easter's number one, and then most people come uh, to church on, sun, or on, on Mother's Day Sunday. If God can't get you to church, then your mother probably will, and that's a good thing. Uh, and then the second one, uh, and I, I don't know this for a fact, but I've talked to several different people that have, uh, have confirmed this, that it is the, the biggest... Uh, restaurant day of the year as well. That as mom kind of takes the step out of the kitchen and dad has no idea what he's doing, the family goes out to eat, and I think that's really funny. Um, FedEx now delivers on Mother's day. What is that? Yeah. They do. Wow. There you go. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. We uh, so happy Mother's Day to all of the moms to all of the grandmothers. Uh, in our community. What I have learned in the last couple of years of, after being a parent and watching my wife be a mom is that uh, being a mom is sometimes challenging. Being a mom is, uh, is sometimes, and I would say when you have little kids and maybe even when you have older kids, we're not there yet, but is uh, thankless a lot of the times. And it can be a very lonely and isolating existence. My wife would also say on the flip side, it's been the greatest, the most incredible, the most wonderful aspect of her life. But in that vein, I want everybody to do something for me right now. I want you to pull out your cell phone. I know that you all have them on you. And if you have not already given your mom a text, and hopefully not a half-hearted text that we heard about over here. (laughs) If you have not already given your mom a text this morning, I want you to text her Happy Mother's Day and a, and a short message telling her how much you appreciate her, how much you love her. If you've already done that to your mom, then I want you to uh, choose another mom that you know and send them a text and just tell them that you love them, that you're praying for them. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to do that, and then we'll, uh, we'll put our phones away. This is the quietest that may have ever been in here. Usually people are talking all throughout. It's... Um, as Russ said, I often, uh, maybe similar to, to Russ, I often, I think things but I don't follow through with them. I think, oh, I should, I should tell that person that I, I really uh, think she's doing an incredible job or I should tell my wife I love her right now, but you, you get going and you do other stuff. I think it's important just to pause and just to say, no, I'm going to send a message right now. And as informal as this is, it's again a small gesture just to say, I love you, I care for you, we're praying for you. So uh, it's important that we recognize the wonderful moms in our lives. Um, let's jump in to the book of Acts, all right? So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Let me, uh, let me just pray really briefly, and then, uh, the way that this morning is going to roll is we're going to walk through these passages and kind of get an idea of the form, the structure of this section of scripture, and then we'll talk about some of the truth, uh, some of the biblical relevance to, to, this stuff. So would you pray with me? God, we are thankful for, um, those women in our lives moms and grandmothers and uh, aunts and sisters and and just influential women who have cared for us, who have loved us, who have shown us uh, who you are. We thank you, Lord. We thank you so much. We pray that you would be with them, that you would be a God of comfort uh, with them this morning. Lord, um, we pray as we Come to your scripture this morning that you would give us humility as we read. That you would give us, uh, you would give us hearts to understand. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this uh, second half of chapter one, verses twelve through twenty-six, can be broken down uh, into three pretty distinct individual sections, kind of uh, flowing in and out of one another, but, but three pretty distinct sections. So we're going to look at each three of these uh, in, in this idea of, of the form or the structure of this passage really quickly. So let me begin by reading this first section. Uh, I entitled it The Return to Jerusalem. It's verses 12 through 14, and this is what it says. Russ made a comment that I brought my big Bible today. It's uh, Mother's Day. I thought I would bring the big, the big scripture out. Uh, So this first section, the return to Jerusalem, just eight verses earlier in chapter 1, we hear Jesus' instruction to go to Jerusalem and to wait, to sit tight. Something big is going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to come, but you need to go back to Jerusalem. You need to wait. You need to hold on. And so they head back from this place where they were at. They say it's a Sabbath day journey. What that means, it's an Old Testament reference to the amount of distance somebody could walk on the Sabbath day and still be within uh, kind of the, the Jewish law, the, the Hebraic law. This, uh, this distance is roughly a half a mile, three quarters of a mile in length, and, and what it relates to is the distance from the farthest tent to the tabernacle in Old Testament times. So when they were in the wilderness wandering, they would set up these tent cities this was a Sabbath day journey was the far, about the distance from the farthest tent out to the tabernacle, and that's as far as you could walk on the Sabbath. So they walk about that amount of, uh, of distance, three-quarters of a mile, half a mile, somewhere in there. And although the location of the upper room is unknown, it is very possible that it's the same room where the Last Supper had taken place, maybe even the same room where the resurrection appearances had happened. And all the key people are in place now all the 11 disciples, the women, and Jesus' family, that uh, that, that Luke sees these as kind of those key people. Let's mention these folks. These are the folks that have gathered together. These are the folks that are now devoting themselves to prayer. They're in one accord, and, and, and now they are waiting for this next thing to happen that Jesus talked about. Second section, the fate of Judas, verses 15 through 20 says this, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of the persons was all was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Alcadema, is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, this is Peter again, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Maybe not your typical Mother's Day passage. <laughs> Uh, that you read. And I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on, on this, uh, this parenthetical phrase of what happens to Judas. Uh, but, but this is uh, Peter speaking, and, and Luke writes this little, this, he puts it in parentheses, and, and to Theophilus, who he's writing this to. This is just what people want to know. Well, what happened to Judas? What happened to the traitor? And so he puts it in there. It's in parentheses. It's—I don't think it's meant to be the, uh, the, the the main purpose of this section of scripture. I think it's more just for information. Hey, this is what happened to Judas. He bought this field, and things didn't go well. Obviously. So at this point, Peter steps up and addresses the elephant in the room, and is essentially asking or answering the question: How did Judas's actions fit into God's overall plan? Peter addresses this issue by quoting two different scriptures at the end of that that I read. Those are, uh, those are Old Testament scriptures from the book of Psalms, Psalm sixty nine twenty five and 109, 8. You guys can go there and read that if you want to. But Peter is seeking to bring sense and reassurance to the situation at hand. The disciples are waiting. They had lived life with this guy named Judas. He became a traitor, and you've got to imagine that they were beginning to wonder What happened to Judas? How does this fit in to God's plan? Some of the disciples may have even been remembering Jesus' words in Matthew 9 where he says this, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first matthew 19:28 through 30 you wonder at what point in this stage did the reality of judas's death begin to hit the other disciples Again, clearly this was important enough for Luke to put in the scripture. I don't think it's, it's the main point of this section. But clearly it, it's an important detail. And you've got to imagine the disciples are beginning to wrestle with this idea of God's overall plan. And how did our friend, how did our brother Judas and his actions fit into this? Maybe even Peter heard some of the disciples talking about what they heard Jesus say in Matthew 19. They begin to whisper, what, what about that judging thing of the 12 tribes? There's only 11 of us now. Judas would have been a trusted and good friend. He would have spent three years with these guys. The disciples are beginning to try to reconcile his actions with God's plans. Imagine the confusion that must have been around this idea. Maybe even low morale, maybe even people beginning to question this whole thing. So, in using Psalm 69 and using this portion of Psalm 109, Peter is affirming scripture and he's assuring the followers gathered that the prophecy was predictive and still needed to be fulfilled. Somebody needed to fill Judas's spot. And so, swiftly, they decide that Judas's vacant seat must be filled. On to the third section here, verses 21 through 26, choosing a new number 12. So one of the men who have accompanied them, uh, or so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us as a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, "You Lord." who knows the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 disciples. Peter lays out these two criteria must have been with us from the beginning. He must have been a part of our community from the very beginning. When John was doing all of his, his baptizing, that's when that community began. He must have been there from the very beginning, and he must be willing to testify to the resurrection. This idea of testifying to the resurrection, we will see as long as we study the book of Acts, this was the central thing for the apostles. This was the central thing for Peter. It was the central thing for Paul. The, the, the resurrection, everything hinged. On the resurrection. And so Peter says, hey, he must have been with us from the beginning, and he must be willing to testify to the resurrection. These two things filled out the criteria for apostolic ministry, firsthand experience in community, and a willingness to testify to the resurrection. And they propose two men, Barsabbas and Matthias. They pray, they cast lots, and they choose. It's, a, it's an interesting, interesting. Piece of scripture. There's several things that I think are, are important for us to gather from this. And the first one I'm going to speak about from a, a, a biblical and narrative standpoint that something really important takes place here. And if this is from a big level, from a, a macro level, as I would say it. Here it is. The church is beginning to take on a form and a structure in this passage. Before this event, really what was happening is you had this very, very organic and fluid group of guys f- trying to figure out what they're doing. There wasn't a ton of form. There wasn't a ton of structure to what was happening. All that was really going on is that they were a community together, a small, committed community And when Peter begins to speak up, when Peter begins to assume some of this leadership that Jesus had entrusted to him, that Jesus had said, this is going to be your role, when Peter stands up and begins to address the elephant in the room, begins to speak to the rest of the disciples, and then the decision that follows to fill the seat of Judas, the organized church as we know it is beginning to be formed. Structure is beginning to be drawn in to give, uh, to give some framework for these guys, for these men and women that are in this upper room. Processes are beginning to take shape, and churching, in quotes, is beginning to happen. I think it's always good to remember, even though it's established and it's maintained by the sovereignty of the Lord, the church has been and always is intended to be stewarded by human beings. I found this quote from John MacArthur. He says this, even in God's work of redemption, he has called certain men, and I'd put in there, and women, to significant participation. People have been used throughout the unfolding drama of the kingdom of God. God established the church, but in a sense, he hands the keys over to us. Humans were part of God's plan from the very, very beginning." And so in this scripture, we begin to see some form and some structure beginning to take place with the church. Now, the church, anytime you bring that up in church, uh, it's a little dicey, because the reality is, is we all have a different understanding, we all have a different emotional reaction to this idea of church. Some have a deep, deep love and appreciation and commitment to the church, both global and local. Some people you start talking about church stuff and their eyes light up and they get excited. Russ Davis is a guy like that. Russ has a deep, deep love for the church of God and it's something incredibly admirable. Others have been wounded. Others have been hurt. Others have felt abandoned by the church. And some are completely indifferent. Feeling like, well, the church no longer really matters. I can kind of do my faith on my own, and I'll go or I won't go, and I'll be involved or I won't be involved, but it's, it's really kind of secondary to my relationship with Jesus. And in between any of those, there, there are uh, different ways to understand and to view and to feel about the church, but we all sit here with a mixed idea of what's going on. I would say, and I I don't think it would take much to argue this point, that the church has become a cultural or or even personal punching bag for a lot of us. That it's it's an easy scapegoat for our fears, for our frustrations, for our hurts. And oftentimes we just project that stuff onto this idea of church, both global and local. I found this quote which I think is uh, a really, really fascinating quote. It's by a, a, a musical artist named Sufjan Stevens. Any, any mom, 30-year-older, probably knows who Sufjan Stevens is, I'm sure. Uh, this is what he says. I like to believe that through years of confirmation and em- embarrassment with church culture, my relationship with God has never really suffered. God has been a patient, steadfast, loyal friend often against his better judgment, I'm sure. My relationship with the church, however, has been akin to a dysfunctional tug-of-war one might have with his in-laws. There is a will to love, but with absolutely no natural proclivity. But isn't this one of the insurmountable conundrums of our faith, to yield ourselves enthusiastically to a belief system that requires participation in a community, the church, a fellowship of believers, often rotten, nasty people? woefully misled, gossipy, snooty, condescending, weird, wild, culturally inane people. And I am one of them. But there you are worshiping beside each other, regardless of whether or not you love each other. The level we are called to for the body of Christ is unbearably hard, not only because of the strangeness of the people who live in that body, but also the ways in which the church has assimilated Particular cultural characteristics I find unlikable, uncomfortable, uncool, and or totally unchristian. I read this quote uh, actually a couple of years ago and and, uh, took it out of an interview that was on there and, and stuck it in a resources for sermons document that I have going because this quote spoke to me because I share a lot of its sentiment. I read that and I felt like, man, that sounds like something I would have said. Maybe not quite that well, but I probably would have said something a lot like that. What I have learned over the last couple of years, and, and where I would maybe go farther than, than this guy, Sufyan, is to say that I'm still committed to the church. That I still find the church beautiful. That I still find the church engaging, and that even on its worst days, that, on its worst days, that I still believe... The church is what Jesus has called us into. Nothing less than that. We sit next to one another this morning, each with our own biases and our our own feelings about this idea of church and process and, and formalized churching and all that kind of stuff. But by sitting here, we can testify to the beauty of the church. We proclaim that we believe that the church can be what Christ intended it to be. We sit here and we can proclaim that we believe that we are a vital part of that process and that we should therefore work to make it a place of kindness, of love, of gracie, of grace and of mercy, of truth and of kingdom extension. We have that opportunity when we sit here this morning. So here is why I think this is important. And I I know this kind of sounds a little bit like a rebuke, and I didn't really mean it to be this way, but the more I started writing, uh, the the more it just began to to flow like this, is this section of scripture is important on this macro level for this reason. The church is beautiful. The church is beautiful. It was started 2,000 years ago by a couple of guys, a couple of women sitting in a room and casting lots, what started in that place is absolutely beautiful. And all of its forms and its diversity, we have to hold on to this idea that the church is truly, truly beautiful, and that it is God's plan for redemption, and that we play a part in that. On to a more personal level from this scripture. You see, this passage is not really about Judas' death or Peter's speech or even choosing Matthias. It's really about faith. The disciples go back from Jerusalem and having faith in the words that Jesus said, go back. They go back because they have faith. The disciples had faith in God's sovereign plan when they hear about Judas. One of our best friends became a traitor, but we have faith in God's plans. The disciples have faith In God, when they cast lots. So this begs the question to me, our small group had a great discussion about this, is how do you make an important decision? When you find yourself standing up against a a big decision, a life-altering decision, how do you make that? When was the last time you casted lots for that decision? Having faith that God would show up. You see, more often than not, when we have big decisions, I think one of two things happens. Either we make the decision completely apart from our Christian faith, resting on our own strength, our own resolve, our own skills, or we completely over-spiritualize, spending months waffling back and forth, wishing for some sort of definitive sign from God as to this is my next step. I don't see a lot of people live in between those things, a good balance between those things. What I love about this scripture is the swift process employed to make an incredibly significant decision. Think about it this way. How many pastoral searches in our current church end with picking a name out of a hat? If Russ were to move, not that he's going to, If Russ were to move, would our community nominate a few names that meet a minimum requirement and then just draw straws to see out of those names who gets it? Of course not. (laughs) Absolutely not. It would be a long two, three, four-month process, maybe even longer. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad or good, but here's the question we have to wrestle with. Do we have faith in God enough to trust God? that if we did choose name a name out of a hat, that it would be the right choice? Do we trust God's plan enough, God's sovereignty enough, that if we did choose that way to go about filling a vacant seat in our leadership, that we would, we would trust that God would show it's easy to say, well, the complexity of our culture and our society and, and church and the budgets and all this stuff, there's no way, it has to be a long hiring process or, or individually, we, this, this decision is way too big to make flippantly, we need to think about it for months and months and fast and all that stuff. Again, those things aren't bad things in of themselves, but you have to begin to ask, where, where does trust and faith begin to interplay in these things? I believe it comes down to two things, two things that the disciples, the apostles show us in this passage, a lack of closeness and a lack of trust. I believe it's those two things that they showed us an incredible closeness to the Lord. They showed us an incredible trust in the Lord where we sometimes lack those things. That's the difference between then and now. Let's look at these real briefly. That lack of closeness. The apostles pray beforehand, and they cast lots. And I I love this prayer. They say, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all. I wonder if one of the reasons we struggle to make decisions is because we have divided hearts. The disciples could offer this short prayer and then swiftly decide because they were so close to the Lord. They had already given everything up in their lives for his gospel message, sold out for Jesus. Here's what I know. Most issues that I face in my life are directly correlated to the distance I create between me and Jesus. Now, the issues don't arise because of the distance, but my effectiveness in handling those issues changes because of that distance. Issues will come, decisions will need to be made, stuff happens. The only thing that I can control is how close that I am to Jesus when they do. James 4, 8 says this, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. The Greek word here is ingizo, and it literally means to attach one thing to another. Now, we like to think that our gracious and merciful God will always be near, and I believe that he is always present. You think about that famous footsteps poem that he's the one carrying us, but I'm not sure that he's always near, and it's not because he doesn't desire to be near, but because we're unwilling to be near to him. See, to be near, there needs to be two people need to play a part in that, to be attached to To something, there needs to be two entities involved, the thing being attached and the thing that's getting something attached to them. I think God is always present. I think God desires to be near to us. God desires to be attached to us, but we're not always willing to let that happen. You see, the disciples did not need to form a board or an institute uh, or institute an application process or even run background checks or do all those things because their hearts and minds were already so close with the Lord. They knew that their decisions would be aligned with his will. They had attached themselves to Christ. In drawing near to the Lord, he had drawn near to them. He was present in their lives. Their hearts were already aligned with his will. When people make swift, informed, prayerful decisions, it's because I believe they're close with the Lord. The second thing, this lack of trust. Who do you really trust in your life? Think about it. Who do you really, really trust in your life? I trust my wife. I trust my dad, my sisters. I have a a, a small group that I trust implicitly, a, a a small group of friends that I trust with anything. What do all these people have in common is that I know them deeply. I trust my mom. I can remember coming home from my freshman year of college. It was uh, Thanksgiving break. I think it was the first time I'd come home since I had gone. And I was telling my mom about this girl that I had met who was dating somebody at the time. And I had uh, talked about her. Her name was Grace. And um, I don't know if I said that I liked her, but, but, um, but I was explaining how much time we were spending together, and, and my mom just kind of stopped me. And, and I think at some point in this conversation, I did say, well, she's kind of got a boyfriend, but I really, if she didn't have a boyfriend, that'd be really awesome, because I would <laughs> like to date her. And, and my mom just kind of stopped, and she said, oh, this girl this girl likes you. I said, well, mom, she's got a boyfriend. There's no way she likes it. How do you even know that? But I trusted my mom's comment in that time. Because I was kind of <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of in this place of saying, well, you know, I'm I'm an eligible bachelor. I'm 19 here. I should probably start dating somebody. And I really liked Grace, but I didn't think that there was any chance. And, and so I was kind of waffling in this time to say, well, maybe I just give it up and 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 pursue somebody else or or get back on the market, if you will. And um and And I trusted my mom in that time and just was patient. That was my mom laughing in the back. And was just patient and waited. And soon enough, Grace and I began to date. She did break up with her boyfriend first, everybody. (laughs) Chill out. But that was one of those times that I trusted my mom. You see, it's hard to trust something or someone that you don't know. The apostles could trust in God's sovereignty, in his sovereign plan, because they had made it a practice to avail themselves to him, to be known by him, to know him, to be close. There was no room for a divided heart in apostolic ministry. The apostles could trust in the Lord because they knew the Lord and because they were with the Lord. Luke makes it a point to say, both in the end of the gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts, that they were constantly in prayer, that they were meeting together for the purposes of worship, driving this point home, that they were with each other, that they were with the Lord. There was a closeness, and because of that, they could trust. Trust in God for his his provision, for his answers to our prayers, for his direction in our lives comes when we are obedient to live as He desires us to live, with Him. Trust can happen when we release control, when we humble ourselves and get beyond our own egos and our own hang-ups, and we truly, truly have faith in God's plan for us. Let me close with two things. I find myself uh, in conversations often about the difference between the early church church And the current American church that we know, that we are a part of, why are they so different? People ask, why can't we just go back to old church ways, to the first church, to the apostolic church? There are a thousand reasons why we can't, and we never will. Some of which are completely out of our control. We live in a different culture. We are not persecuted for our faith in the same way that they were. Money is different. Values are different. Advances in technology are all different. We will never go back to the way it was like 2,000 years ago. It's okay. But you know what is in our control? Is our closeness with the Lord. Our trust in the Lord. There were two things that we could draw from this morning. Here's what they would be. One, the church is beautiful. It's got some flat sides, it's got an underbelly, but the church is beautiful, and we have to hold on to that. We have to hold on to that. And the second thing is all further decisions should be made by casting lots. (laughs) Not really, but, but here's what it is. Our faith is proportional to our closeness and our trust of Jesus. The story of the apostles choosing Matthias is not just about choosing number 12. It illustrates this bigger point of faith, that faith grows in our closeness, that our faith grows when we begin to trust. Let's pray.